We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Welcome to another episode of The Dark and Dower, and I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And with me today is a special guest, Carol Hellman. Carol Hellman is a former American Airlines flight attendant for Flight One, that terrorists were planning to crash into the Sears Tower in Chicago on September 11, 2001. She's speaking out for the first time, and there are likely dozen more planes in which she says that the FBI or anyone has ever admitted before. Because of employment contract restrictions, Hellman could not speak out about what took place since retiring from her employment of 21 years. She is now speaking out about her experiences that day. Uh, Carol, thank you very much for coming on and talking with me. Oh, my pleasure. So with every uh, interview I've ever done, mm -hmm. um, I always tell the audience uh, that I want the guest to basically give a description of who she is and uh, how she came into employment for whatever uh, service that they uh, are employed with. So what made you become a flight attendant at American Airlines? Well, I didn't become a flight attendant until I was 40 years old, but I had always wanted to be a flight attendant from the time I was 12. I went to Italy with my mother when I was 12 on an Alitalia flight. And my mother told me, I looked at the flight attendant, which was then a stewardess, and I said, I want to do that when I grow up. And it took me a lot of years, but I got there. I also had worked for United Airlines and reservations before I was a flight attendant with American. So it took me quite a few years to get the job that I had. So. Was it. Um, well, I mean, you waited a long time and that's I did. 28 years. Uh, was when you when you became a flight attendant at age 40, was it everything you've expected it even when you were at 12? Yes, I I absolutely loved my career. I've met so many interesting people. Um, I flight attendants are like any uniform job. We're family. We've, we get very close to each other, especially when you do international flights, because you're in another country and you're all you have and you're there overnight and, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, I really love to travel. I've always wanted to travel. I enjoy traveling immensely. Um, different cultures, everything. So, yeah, it was uh, pretty much what I thought it would be. Uh that was one of the reasons when 9-11 happened, I had only been flying probably about a year and a half. And I was so angry that it happened 
because I felt like they would be taking my job that I've always wanted away from me. Um, I almost got furloughed. It got down to my number because the airlines cut back so much on employment. And it, I, I just, by the skin of my teeth, missed being furloughed. And it just angered me so much that they did this. Mm. You know, they attacked my airline, my city. I live in New York. Yeah. They, you know, everything. And rather than get scared, which a lot of flight attendants actually left, they got frightened. I, you know, I got angry because I'm just typical New Yorker. <laughs> I just, yeah, right. you know, I, I don't. I don't scare easily. How about that? <laughs> Me yeah. and you both. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. So, you, uh, <laughs> you know, let's go back a little bit. Uh, when you when you were um, you went through training uh, at, as a flight attendant, mm -hmm. was one of the requirements uh, in your training uh, regarding how to react to certain situations such as a traditional hijacking? Yes. Uh, and what, what did that uh, pertain to? Well, basically, we were trained in a flight attendant is trained in so many things. I have basic medical knowledge. I have, um, you know, customer service, obviously. Um, also, we do terrorist training, which involved learning about the different types of um, hijackers that you possibly could have on your plane. Um, they had the religious fanatic. They had um the um the person who wanted uh fame they had they're all different kinds of hijackers and basically you're told to give them whatever they want so they don't hurt anybody nine out of ten they're going to get what they want like to go to a you know the political terrorist who wants to go to the country they're from and they hijack the plane so you basically give them whatever they want so that they don't hurt anybody is basically what you do. And they also told us about the Stockholm syndrome. We learned about that, mm. which is where your captors basically take one person, they treat them really well. And because you're such under duress, you start like being on their side. It's a whole mindset that, you know, that, yeah. So, yeah, we were trained in probably three or four different types of hijackers. But basically just giving them whatever they want to get sure. you people on the ground safely. Correct. Right. And, and you know, I have read the FAA's 1999 security manual protocols regarding airline piracy. And mm -hmm. it's it stated in the uh, manual, this is 1999 now, but it's mm -hmm. stated in the manual that it's a, they would rather have a female flight attendant speak with a male hijacker. And this is basically to lessen the tensions because a male hijacker will see another male as a threat. Mm -hmm. Is that what they teach? I No, you know, I wasn't taught that, but that makes perfect sense. I, I really didn't get that in the training, no. Right. But that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, it basically just says that uh, this will this will lessen the aggressiveness of the male mm -hmm. hijacker and won't see the female hijack flight attendant as a threat uh, to himself. But there was no training about any suicide hijackings, correct? No, no, that wasn't one that no, that wasn't in the uh, curriculum. No, 
So you talked about being very close friends with flight attendants. Mm -hmm. Is is it usually the case that when you fly, you fly with the same crew or is it always a different crew? Okay. Um, the airlines, basically how you get your trips is every month you bid a schedule. Your schedule is based on how many years you've been flying. It's all seniority mm. based. So typically, yeah, when I was an inter... American used to have their um, divisions separated, international and domestic. When I started out, I was domestic, and that was more or less a crapshoot. You could fly with, you know, all different people. But when it was international, it was basically the same people that you flew with all the time because of your seniority and what you could get every month as a trip. I did London for 16 years. So, yeah, it was, uh, you get to know them. They're your family. And it's basically the same people. So here we are in September mm -hmm. 11, 2001. Take us right through the top of the day and what you experienced on that day on, on American Airlines Flight 1. Okay, that day I experienced, what I experienced, okay, how do I explain this? Um. What I experienced that day, I would learn further information a couple of days down the road as to whether my flight was, who was on my flight. But let's start on my day. So I go to the airport, I get on the plane. The plane was very light. It was a very light day, um, very few passengers. Um, we were supposed to leave at 9 a.m. to fly to L.A., and I was at the front door. I was what they call the director. Every flight attendant has a position on the plane. I was the director. So I, it was a two, dual aisle airplane. It was a 767. So you, you, know, you have to direct people whether to go on the right side or the left side of the airplane. So I'm directing. And all of a sudden, the agent comes down. Most of the people are on. And she comes down to the end of the jet bridge. And, and I'm by the door. So she says to me, come here, look. And she pulls me outside. It's about quarter till, I guess, quarter to nine. And I could see the jet from the jet bridge. I could see the, the World Trade Center burning. I could see the smoke. And I said, wow, what happened? She goes, she has some plane hit the World Trade Center. And at this point, we all thought, oh, it was some guy had a heart attack and a little plane and by accident, he hit the top. I mean, we're not thinking, you know, anything. So I go back on board and I go in the back of the plane to tell the rest of the crew. And on my way back up to the front, I hear the captain say, ladies and gentlemen, due to an air disaster, our flight has been canceled. First thing I want you to do is say a prayer. And the second thing I want you to do is pick up your luggage and leave quietly. So I'm like, oh, wow. You know, I guess our flight's canceled. So mm. What we typically do is we wait after the passengers to plane and we wait around and see if the schedulers will use us for anything else or, you know, what's going on. So as I'm standing up front, three or four Middle Eastern gentlemen come up front and they start arguing with my purser as to why the flight was canceled. Now, the purser is the lead flight attendant who's in charge of like first class and taking care of everything. So they're, you know, like, like yelling at her, we got to get there. And they're, they're like very upset. 
So finally, um, they left. I'm not thinking anything of it. I mean, people are upset that, you know, the flight, they have to get to a business meeting. What do I know? Right. I mean, you know, so um, all the people leave and we're on the plane wondering what they're going to do with us. And the agent comes down. I was probably the last person in America to know that it was American Airlines and it was a commercial flight that hit the World Trade Center because I'm on the plane. And this was basically, there were phones, but it wasn't like today. They were like flip phones or, you know, it wasn't like you look on your it's Facebook and you'll see in like a million things, mm -hmm. you know? So we were on the plane, agent comes down and she goes, they've locked down, they locked down Kennedy. Uh, one Another plane hit the World Trade Center and one hit the Pentagon. They, and then we all looked at each other. We knew something was, you know, was up. But we still didn't know. I still didn't know it was us. I didn't know it was American. Um, so she said, you have to go to operations. In every, um, in every, op, um, there's an operations center in every airport for flight attendants that we have a hub in. So basically it's a room with a TV and you can hang out there and, you know, so she says, you got to go to operations. Now they locked down Kennedy. So we all, you know, we all walk out and all of a sudden I'm in the terminal and I see the flight attendants running, the American flight attendants running to the terminal screaming. It's us. It's us. I had no idea at that point. Um, we go up to ops and basically you know, we sat in silence, which for flight attendants is rare because we talk a lot. Mm. And um, we just watched the towers fall. Then all of a sudden they said they're evacuating Kennedy. Everybody has to leave. So they basically threw us out, put us on the employee bus and I had to drive home. Um, like I said, I was very angry. So. After the shock wore off where I couldn't speak and watching the TV over and over again, because I kept showing it over and over again, I said to my husband, I, that's it. I'm getting on the first plane going anywhere. I was mad. I was pissed off. So I called our schedulers basically the next day. And I said, put me, put me on the next flight you have going anywhere. I said, I don't care. I want to fly. And they said they had a San Francisco flight. And they said, you know, I said, what position? Because every flight attendant has a position on the plane. And they said, what position do you want? Mm -hmm. Which was very odd because, you know, I guess nobody wanted to go except me. Mm -hmm. So um, that was probably, I want to say it was the second day. So it wasn't 9-11. I think it was the, the third day after 9-11. After why I thought I was going anywhere is beyond me because the bridges and the tunnels were locked down. They had sealed off New York. You couldn't get in or out of New York, mm. which is another reason why, hmm, if there were only those planes, why did they think, why would they seal off all different areas in the tri-state area trying to catch more people if it was just those planes that were involved, if you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That why would they bother sealing everything off? Anyway, so I go to the airport, um, walking through the terminal, and there were three flights that were, because I asked in operations what was going out that night. 
And they said, San Francisco, LA, and Miami. Now, if you think about that, those are three ports of exit out of the United States that if they could get out of the tri-state area, they could easily get out of the country by those three, those three ports of exit. So those are the flights that were supposedly, I could say, supposedly going out. So as I'm walking through the terminal, I look over to the left and there's an LA flight. And there was so much commotion going on over there. I see Port Authority cops. There's all kinds of stuff going on, but I just kept walking to my flight. So I get on my flight and I'm the most senior at a year and a half, which is extremely unusual. Mm. There were some younger flight attendants that were new hires and they were basically crying. And I said, why did you come? I volunteered for this mission. I said, how come you're here if you don't want to be? And they said, the company told us that if we didn't go, they'd fire us. And Mm. at when you're a new hire up to six months, you don't have union protection until six months. You're basically on probation and you have no protection. Mm. Um, So here I am with new hires. They've never worked a flight basically before. This is a transcon. This is involved back then. There was a lot very involved with meals and all kinds of stuff. So I'm showing them what to do. All of a sudden, we're being delayed. And the captain comes on and he says, ladies and gentlemen, due to air traffic, our flight's been delayed. And I look at the flight attendant. I go, there's nothing up there. What is he talking about? So then all of a sudden, all the passengers start, they're on their phones, the phones, and they're going, they're going, they're stopping me in the aisle. They're going, we just heard that, we just heard that they found um, three guys with box cutters and knives on the LA flight next to us. And they're like all talking on their phones. So I'm like, until the captain tells us what's going on, everybody just calm down, you know, we'll see what happens. So then another maybe 15 minutes, half an hour goes by, whatever it was. And the captain comes on and he says, ladies and gentlemen, our flight's been canceled. And I'm like, oh, great, whatever. So on this flight, there are the original crew and they're, are deadheaders. Deadheaders are flight attendants that are being rowed back to like, you know, another, another place. They'll either use them or say the flight attendants from San Francisco were stuck in New York and wanted to go home. So they'll, they'll ride them back home. They won't work it. So we all stayed behind after the passengers left. You know, and we were all talking because obviously it's two days after 9-11. Everybody's like, you know, we're all talking about it. So we finally decide to leave. By this time, everybody's gone. All the passengers have gone through the airport. Mm-hmm. So we go out, walk up the jet bridge, and we go to leave. We start walking. I don't know who it was. Somebody screams, turn around and run, turn around and run. So we start running down the end of the terminal. I look at the captain who's next to me, and I go, what the hell is going on now? He goes, you know, that flight, the LA flight. I said, yeah. He goes, we were never going anywhere. This was a sting operation by the FBI. They just took three guys connected with the hijacking off of that flight. I said, what? He goes, yeah, they told us we knew we weren't going anywhere. They never told the flight attendants. Okay. So 
this was some sting operation to catch the remaining hijackers in the area, which nobody's ever heard about. Mm. Um, so after, you know, they, they, they basically what they did is they blocked off the aisle when they told us to run the seats at JFK are like on a, they used to be on a row. So they took the row and they're movable and they threw it across the aisle. So we couldn't walk past. So a few minutes later, I see a manager that I knew and about eight flight attendants who looked like somebody had killed them walk into a little debrief room right near where we were. They have like these little rooms like off of the gates. Apparently, these were the flight attendants who were working the L.A. flight. Mm. And they shut the door. And after they did that, then they told us we could leave. As I walked by the gate to at the L.A. gate, I looked up and there was a, a SWAT team member there with a rifle standing in front of the gate door. And we just we left. Um, then when they finally opened up New York to fly, I volunteered again to fly. And um, what they did is they sent me to San Francisco. I was a deadheader. I rode to, not, I'm sorry, San Diego. I rode to San Diego and I was to bring back one of the first transcons from San Diego back to New York. Um, I'm working this flight coming home and there's a captain. Now you have to understand there's so many captains and we don't really see them like, like unless you're up front and you're the purser, you know, who does communication with them. You really don't have much to do with them. So I didn't really know. I didn't really know this man. Or so I thought comes to the back of the plane. He was deadheading. He was riding back to New York and he starts to tell us a story. And he tells us a story about he was flying flight one to L.A. the morning of 9-11. And he said the FBI told him that his flight was supposed to hit the Sears Tower in Chicago that morning. And I said, really, I was on that flight. That was my flight. And he said, did the FBI talk to you? And I said, no. I said, he goes, I told them, why are you talking to us? We're in the cockpit. We don't, we don't, we didn't see the passengers. They wanted mm -hmm. to try and get information on the passengers. I told them, why don't you talk to the flight attendants? You need, I mean, they have a list of who we are. I mean, you know, they could have talked to us. Nobody got in touch with me. He said that the FBI had also told him that there was a target for every major city in the U.S. They had a target that morning. This is what the captain, this is what he told me. And he told me that I was supposed to hit the Sears Tower in Chicago that morning because I was on his flight. So that's how I knew was from the captain that this had been, you know, the plan. So you bring up a lot of interesting questions and a lot of interesting points. And some of these points I've actually reiterated in early podcasts. For example, three years ago, I did a podcast on United Airlines Flight 23 which got into national fame because this year TMZ of all online publications yeah. um, actually covered this really important story about what you went through, which was this was a plane 
that was suspected to be part of the hijackings of September 11, 2001, and it was called the fifth plane. Now, the media covered this on September 11, 2001, but the story died, just like with the, the claims that there were um, there were news reports on September 14th uh, that there was an additional arrest at JFK that you talked about uh, mm -hmm. regarding, I think it was over 50 people. Um, there's a co-researcher of mine named DJ Thermodetonator, who is the only person I know of besides the infamous and probably the world's most renowned 9-11 scholar and researcher, Paul Thompson. They're the only people that I know of that covered the uh, additional hijacking ring of September 11, 2001. Surprisingly enough, uh, we've been waiting for a very long time, about um, 20 years, uh, people that worked on these flights that were going to talk about these experiences. And here you are. You're yeah. one of now just a couple now just coming out. But it, it, it solidifies a point because what I want to talk to you about is the um, the notion that's raised about these people. And you said it was about three or four people on that plane. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, they a few of them came up. And and who knows how many there are because only a mm. few of them were talking to the purser. You don't know who, you know what I'm saying? Sure. There might yeah. be others, but those were the ones who came up and were talking to the purser as to why it was canceled. Mm. Yeah. For so the pilots and the flight attendants of Flight 23, they've come out and they basically said it was three p four people, three men, one one woman, but it was a man because mm -hmm. the flight attendant actually saw hair on her on her hands and it was a, a full burqa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they they was dressed as a woman, uh, but they they did. It was a national ground stop. Now, for American Airlines, the CEO of operations at the time was Gerald Arpry, and Gerald Arpry was the executive vice president of operations for American Airlines, and he's mm -hmm. actually the first official in the airline industry to order a national stop for American Airlines, and that's why you didn't fly. You uh, know why he did? Do you know why? It? It was well, well, that's because of, of flight, flight 11. It was because of my brave colleagues who called from the plane that hit the World Trade Center yes. and told Boston operations exactly what was going on mm -hmm. on the airplane. That's why. But people don't know that the heroes, that's what gets me. Sorry. No, it's, it's fine. Look, you know, Betty Ong uh, and the others on that plane actually yep. did the nation a service Flight because yep. this could have this could have been much worse yeah you know some of us who have covered the additional hijacking scheme of september 11 2001 uh that we uh we weren't paid attention to but you know it is true now it's come out that there were additional hijackings that were going to take place this could have been much worse than what was originally planned right now just to reiterate before i press the record button I was talking with you about this um, this scenario of additional hijackings. Now, going back to 1995, like I told you, uh, there was an operation called Bajinka. And this was originally where the 9-11 um, operation came from. And this was uh, this was created by the 1993 World Trade Center bomber Ramzi Youssef and his uncle, which is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's currently in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And for mm -hmm. being the mastermind of 9-11, where the idea of, of the of hijacking planes and crashing them intentionally at the targets came from. With the Pachinka plot, there was a hidden plot to that in which they were there were sleeper cells in the United States. And remember this is 1995, six years prior to 9-11. 
that they were going to hijack 10 planes. And this is going right back to your story regarding, uh, you know, what the pilot told you, what the FBI told him about there were going to be 10 planes that were going to be hijacked. And they were going to crash all over the intercontinental United States, one of them being the Sears Tower, which we have covered before, being a, a very primary target at the time. Um, and I think the other targets were uh, the White House, the Golden Gate Bridge, a nuclear facility, and um, uh, the Capitol. That's right. So, and it was suspected Flight 93 was going to be the Capitol, but we don't know for sure. Um, but nevertheless, the National Ground Stop by Gerald Arbery, who I consider a hero, an unsung hero at the time, because he got the words from the actual heroes that people have tend to forgotten about, which were the flight attendants right. of Flight 11. And um, we couldn't be thankful for it. And uh, yeah, it's a sad thing. And um, you're very lucky, Carol, uh, that you did not fly. I actually, four years later, I think it was four years later, I was in London when they blew up the bombs, the, the buses and the tube stations mm. in, in London. I was two blocks away. Um, and I had to fly home that morning, too. That's basically when I lost it. I lost it four years later. It took me four years to get help because I have PTSD from my encounters. Mm. That's basically why a lot of people don't want to talk about it either, because I really didn't want to talk about it. But I think it needs to be said. So... Well, I think I think so for sure because look, like I've said, my colleagues and myself, we have covered the story about additional hijackings, but it's never taken traction. But right. we want to show the public that it wasn't just nineteen fundamentalists. This was a larger operation, and if this was a larger operation, I want to know why the federal government and the FBI basically covered up for it. Now, in your entire career as a flight attendant. You were never contacted by the FBI or the Department of nope. Justice? Nope. I basically was dissed by my union because after um, the sting operation, which I didn't get paid for my hours. I'm supposed to get three-hour call-out pay if I don't go mm -hmm. anywhere. Mm -hmm. I called my union, and I told him my story. This was my base representative at JFK, mm -hmm. and I told him my story and because I was a new hire, they treat you like you're a piece of garbage. And they told me, I said to him, how come the FBI didn't get in touch with me? And he goes, why? Do you have any information? He was very nasty to me. Mm. Okay. And what, years late, like maybe a couple of years later, when I started talking about the sting operation, because I wanted all my other flight attendant friends to know about it. Anybody I flew with got the sting operation mm -hmm. store. And, you know, I wanted them to know what was going on. One time I was telling the story and there was a flight attendant who had been a um, manager on duty the night of the sting operation. Mm -hmm. And he was he went back to being a flight attendant because they at that at that time, you could become a manager for a little while if you wanted to, if they liked you, whatever. So I was telling the story and he looks up at me. And he shakes his head and goes, that never happened. And he looks at me hard. And I said, are you calling me a liar? He goes, that never happened. He was trying to shut me up. Hmm. Okay. I don't know what they told him when he was that night, what, what they threatened him. I have no idea. But he was telling, basically telling me to be quiet about it. 
So that was kind of discouraging. And because I talk a lot, I was on a flight one time going to LA and sometimes they need an extra flight attendant. So you work with a different base. I was working with LA flight attendants because it had more passengers than they thought. So they threw me out at the last minute and I worked with an LA crew from New York to LA. And I was on the plane and I was telling the story about the sting yeah. operation. And the flight attendant, this male flight attendant goes to me, I was on that flight. And I was like, I believe there were no accidents, I swear. And, and I said to him, oh my God, you were on that flight. What happened? Because I never got the full story of, you know, I just saw the SWAT team guy told there was, you know, they took them off by my captain. I never got the full story from somebody who was actually on there. Okay. Mm. He, he told me that um, they, the commotion I saw when I was walking by the gate with the Port Authority cops, there was a flight attendant who was on the plane and he said he was working. And they said his badge didn't look right. And they were a little suspect of him because they started talking about deadheading and he had no idea what it meant. Hmm. So one of them kept him talking and the other flight attendant went out and told the gate agent and they got the Port Authority cops and they took him away. That was the first one. Okay. Then he said they were getting ready to leave. They're all, you know, they closed the doors, they back off the gate. He said, and all of a sudden they flung open the front and back door of the airplane and they had, I think he said they, they had the carts, they took the carts and they rolled them down the aisle and they were screaming with rifles, heads down, heads down. And they took the guys connected with the hijack and they knew exactly where they were seated and they took them off the plane at gunpoint. This is what he told me. Hmm. So that's what I found out about the L.A. flight that, you know, with the sting operation that night. Hmm. He you also told me that no, none of the flight attendants came back to work. Um, a lot of them were not were not coming back to work. They were so shaken up by what had happened to them. And uh, that, you know, basically that's it. You, unfortunately, your experiences regarding uh, with the airline industry is similar to that of the flight attendants of flight 23 and Sandy Dorgan, who's one of the flight attendants of flight 23 said that even days afterwards, uh, she was told to report to work, uh, uh, because they were, you know, low on employees. They wanted mm -hmm. to uh, she was threatened. Uh, she would to talk to the media about her experiences with these men and mm -hmm. not to talk to the FBI or what. I mean, she went through a lot. They treat her like, you know, I like they treated that. you. I saw that show. So, yeah, I know how they treated her. And I, yeah, yeah, makes you mad. Yeah, it's unfortunate. The only and, reason flight attendants actually, I think, stay in the job is because of each other. Because the companies don't treat their flight attendants very well. They why is that, by the way? Children. I, I don't know. I think it's because they... They don't want people to know how important we really are so they don't have to pay us well enough. I don't know. I don't know what they're. Mm. I, I honestly don't know why they treat us so badly. I don't. They treat us like children with attendance policies and stuff. It's terrible. I mean, you know, that part of it, the, the company part of it is, you know, 
And mm-hmm. once a year, you go back to, um, I would go back to Dallas, which is where our, our uh, headquarters is. They have a training center there. And once a year, the flight attendants are regulated by the FAA. We have to go back to training once a year to relearn our CPR, to relearn, you know, um, everything, how to evacuate airplanes mm-hmm. all over again, because hopefully, thank God, you never have to use the what we're really trained for, which is evacuations and, sure. you know, medical and stuff like that. So you have to train once a year and go back. You get a cert. I have to be certified once a year. You have to go back. Yeah. You know, in the years prior, Carol, in the years prior to 9-11, was there any type of uh, security uh, complaints regarding the airline industry about stricter security measures that no. you were aware of? Not that I'm aware of. And, you know, they watched us for years. They were mm. they were platinum executives with American. They were our best customers. They flew us constantly to watch. And I know flight attendants now who you say when you, when they think of it, they remember like people standing in the back of the plane, like just watching them, mm. you know, and what they were doing. We used to like go and open up, you know, to feed the, the feed the pilots. You'd open up the door. You'd stand with the door open, just yakking for like five minutes. You know, nobody really ever thought about it. It was not a big deal until then. Sure. There's, you know, there's a famous story um, that happened in the year 2000 about a Delta Airlines flight to Arizona, from Arizona to Washington, D.C. And there was these two men, two Arab men from Saudi Arabia, it was later found out, that one guy basically was asked where the bathroom was, and he went to the cockpit and tried to get in. And the flight attendant says, oh, no, sir, the bathroom's in the back. And so he goes to the back. And about a couple of minutes later, he tries to enter the cockpit again. And later on, you know, she notices, you know, like, you know, these guys are acting very strange, asking about the oxygen tanks and how they get, get turned off and stuff like that in the plane. So plane lands. Meanwhile, you know, they are actually uh, investigated by the FBI, Department of Justice. And it later found out that both of these men were Saudi embassy dignitaries who were going on their way to a Saudi dinner in Washington, D.C. And it was found out that one of the men, Mustafa Al-Hakwin, actually uh, had a rented car which was actually driven by an Al-Qaeda affiliate. And later on, the FBI said that this was a dry run about uh-huh. um, how, how to hijack a plane uh, to get familiar with where the cockpit is, where the bathrooms are, how the flight attendants would react. So, yeah, when you talk about these operators that may have been surveying or securing, you know, trying to figure out the security lapses of each airline and mm-hmm. the airliner and the airline companies. Yes, because the FBI, even in the 9-11 Commission, does state that Mohammed Atta, who was the alleged lead hijacker on Flight 11, actually was in airport airports like Atlanta, you know, surveying securities, uh, security measures there. And one time even dressed as a pilot and, je- and sat on a jump seat in one yeah. plane, according to one pilot. So yeah. I, yes, your story does jibe with uh, the They also, they also like we have uh, security around. We're never supposed to tell anybody where we lay over, okay? Mm. Because I believe that they stole pilots' uniforms out of they had like maids or whatever I guess in these hotels, mm-hmm. and they stole like 
pilot uniforms and flight attendant uniforms, you know, mm. from from the rooms. So it was, you know, it's supposed to be, you're not supposed to post on social media any place that we stay. You're not supposed to, you know, that's mm-hmm. a big no-no. You're not supposed to tell a passenger. A lot of the passengers who go, so where are you staying? And, you know, you're not supposed to tell them. You just don't. That's security. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't. I don't. Um, I had a week before 9-11, I was doing a Fort Lauderdale flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucky me. That's where they were learning to fly. I yeah, had Florida. Yeah. two gentlemen mm-hmm. sitting across from my jump seat in coach. Um and they were staring at me, two Middle Eastern gentlemen, I found out, uh, into the flight because I thought they were Spanish at first. Um, two Middle Eastern guys sitting across from me staring at me. Normally when people stare at me, because that's not unusual, mm-hmm. I just look at them and I, I stare back at them. And usually they look away. These two men did not look away and they looked like they wanted to kill me. And so this is a week before 9-11. So we get up to start the service and I push the cart and I look at them and I said, can I get you something to drink? And they look at me and they just look at me. They won't answer me. And they're just looking at me. Mm -hmm. So I thought they were Spanish. So I said, bebidas, which is drinks for Spanish. Right. And the man looks at me and goes in a Middle Eastern accent. I'm not Spanish. So at this point, this before 9-11, I'm thinking, what a moron, you know, I'm like, so I'm thinking, mm. I, so I looked at him, I go, well, would you like something to drink? You know, and he goes, no, which is another of their MO. They won't take anything to eat or drink from you. Mm. Um, and this was a week before 9-11 coming from Fort Lauderdale. And they were sitting across from my jump seat because I don't know if you're familiar with what happened when the flights, um, took off they made sure that they had uh, men positioned across from the jump seats of the flight attendants the ones that are that some jump seats you're by yourself some jump seats you're across from passengers Mm -hmm. and they made sure they had the men sitting there and when the plane took off and got up they slit the flight attendants throats that was sitting across from them on the jump seat is what they did that's what betty ong um and flight attendant Sweeney talked about exactly what they did on the plane. Mm-hmm. So that's where the box cutters came in. And um, yeah, so they were sitting across from me on that flight from Fort Lauderdale. And one of my friends, uh, flight attendant friends said that she remembers, she said she'll never forget his face because he was sitting across from her jump seat. It was Mohammed Ada mm-hmm. on a smaller plane. I don't remember where she was coming from. And she said he was sitting across from her and she said, you know, she did the same thing I did. She looked at him and he wouldn't look away. And she thought to herself, that man could really hurt me. That's what she thought, just looking at him. Mm -hmm. And when the flight got up, she said that he went to the back. It was a Super 80, McDonnell Douglas 80. And those planes, um, you can stand by the bathroom back there by the seat out of the way and you can see the entire aircraft Mm. and he stood in the back she said and he watched everything we did this is what she told me Mm. yeah so yeah they were watching us carol why do you think 
uh, you know, just to give your own opinion, why, why do you think the FBI um, and the FAA wanted this part of 9-11 covered up? Why did they want the notion of additional hijackings covered up? Um, I think a large part of it had to do with the reason they probably did this to us was our economy, especially mm -hmm. crashing into Wall Street. They wanted to kill our economy. And if any if if people got scared and they didn't want to fly, it would kill the economy of the U.S. Um, as it was, they didn't have flights for a few days and the cargo and everything else, you know, didn't get delivered. I mean, it really messes everything up, mm -hmm. you know, so. Also, there was the um, fl the plane that uh, blew up over the Rockaways. I say blew up. They want to say it lost its its tail or something. That plane blew up. And I think that was also done by the terrorists. And they covered that up tremendously so that because they were so afraid people wouldn't get on an airplane again to fly. Right. Because a few of my friends knew the FO that they tried to blame. They tried to blame him. His father's still fighting it. His name was Sven. And, and they're still fighting. They tried to blame it on him that he did something with the rudder and they lost tail or something. I, you're, talk, you're talking about American Airlines Flight 587. Yeah, I am. Which, 587. Yeah, November 12, 2001, right? Right. Right after that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So... You know, I think they just were very scared that it would kill the economy, which is what I think they were aiming for, the terrorists. I think they were aiming to kill our economy. And would this, and of course, this would actually paralyze the nation as well. Right. I mean, hardly anybody would travel anywhere, even in cars, if this was, you know, a bigger operation where planes would just drop out of the sky like rain. Right. Um, and um, this was a worry for the FAA. And, you mm -hmm. know, there was a report in late 2002 that was given to the 9-11 Commission and the Joint House Inquiry about the damages that this would cause to the FAA for years. I mean, mm -hmm. not even just 2000, for, for many years to come. But, but Carol, you basically did the opposite. You actually wanted to fly, to be defiant. I was angry. I don't get, I don't get scared. I get mad. Mm -hmm. I get angry. And that anger lasted for four years until London. And that's when it blew up on me, literally, when the buses right. and the tubes blew up. Because when I landed um, that flight, and I had actually I'd actually handled a difficult passenger. We had Tina Louise. You know who she is? Oh, sure. Gilligan's yeah. Island on my flight and coach. And she was a horror show. Her and oh, her my goodness. And she was really bad. She wanted to be in first and and business and they were full and she had to sit and coach and she was screaming at me. She wanted first class chicken and she was just a nightmare. And, and her daughter kept going to me. Do you know who my mother is? Do you know who my mother is? I wanted to say, yeah, she mm. some has been from 50 years ago, but I didn't yeah. say it. Mm. So anyway, but when we landed the plane after 9-11, the, the union had put together a stress management team of uh, flight attendants. If there were ever, ever any other incidents that they would meet the plane and see if everybody was okay. So when we landed, um, they called in the back of the airplane and they said, cause that's where I was working. And they said, they want to know if everybody's okay. Now I hadn't cried for four years or whatever. The, I think it was four years that it happened. Hmm. 
And I said, and I just broke down crying and I said, I'm not okay. And my whole crew looked at me and they go, what do you mean you are not okay? And I said, I'm not. I was angry for many years. Um, people who wasn't my personality to be that way. My people, friends of mine, they'd say to my husband, what's the matter with your wife? You know, I mean, it was just, you know, it became who I was. I got very, you know, stern and very, that's just not who I am as a person. Right. And it took me four years and I finally um, took a month or so off and I went to, um, I went to get help. I went to a psychologist and I went and got help. The girl who met the plane asked me if I lived on Long Island because we're from all over, even though you're based in New York. And she's, you know, she said, I have somebody for you. I use them after 9-11. And she gave me the name of somebody. So, yeah, because I was I was a mess after that. I cried for four days straight. My husband didn't know what to do with me. It was terrible. That's another reason why right. people won't talk about it. Because it'll just bring it all up again. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to do that. And the airline industry is uh, has failed to provide like psychiatric care for this phenomenon. I had another incident like five years later, and it brought up all my post-traumatic stress. And they and, and the woman at the um, EAP, which is supposed to be assistance for anybody having problems, told me that it had nothing to do with 9-11. It was because my mother had cancer. She told me. Because mm-hmm. I told her what I had been going through. I had an incident where this is where it comes in, where I told you that the flight attendants walked off a flight going to, I think it was San Francisco, I'm not sure. And the flight attendants had noticed the behavior of these Middle Eastern men on the plane, like five years after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And they, the flight attendants walked off and said, we're not taking this plane. And um, I was sitting standby, which is, you know, if somebody doesn't show up, they give you the duty of the day. You sit for like six hours in our operations and wait to be called if they need you, if somebody doesn't show up for the flight so the flight can go out. So I was sitting standby and they called me for the San Francisco flight. And I go down to the gate. I, well, actually, the manager on duty said to me, you, you got a flight, go down to the gate. So I said, OK, let me call my husband. I got to give him the flight number. What's the flight number? He goes, no, just go down to the gate. And he's telling me, he goes, you got to go now. And I'm like, oh, all right. So I leave, I go down to the gate and there's nobody there. So I pull up the flight, I pull up my name and what my next assignment is. And I find the gate. I go over there. There's a gate agent. She goes to me, are you the standby? I said, yeah. Mm. She goes, get on the plane now. I'm like, okay. I figured nobody's at the gate. I said, wow, they must be waiting for me to take off, right? So I get on the plane and there's nobody on the plane. There's cleaners cleaning up the plane and putting new blankets and stuff on. And I'm like, what the hell? So I go back up and I said to the gate agent, there's nobody on the plane. She goes, yes, there is. The flight attendants are in the back of the plane. Get on the plane. I'm like, okay. So I get on the plane. I go to the back and there they are. There's some flight attendants. We went out without a full complement of flight attendants because they couldn't get anybody to take this flight unbeknownst to me when I went down there. They said, how'd they get you? I said, what are you talking about? They said, oh, the flight attendants walked off because they had hijacked. They had um, four Middle Eastern men who were acting peculiar and the flight attendants refused to take this flight. 
And everybody's been telling everybody else. Everybody was calling everybody else, telling them, don't pick up your phone. Don't go to the app. Don't go on this flight because they were trying to get people to cover it. So that's why he didn't want me to talk to anybody else. He didn't want me, you know, he just said, go to the airplane. So I'm like, okay. So um, what they had done is they had deplaned everybody. I guess they searched them, went through the luggage, whatever they, they, and then they let them all back on the plane. I was on the plane when these people started coming on. So I'm thinking to myself, there's, um, they couldn't remove them because they couldn't find anything and that would be discrimination and they would be sued. So they had to let them back on the plane. So I'm on the plane, I'm working business and the man, one of them is in my business class. And the only reason I took the flight was because I had air marshals on my flight. Right. So I knew that I wasn't alone on that plane and I was on reserve and it was the last day of my reserve assignment, you know, of my month to be on reserve. And what they do is they pay you a certain amount of hours per month, even if you don't fly them. And if you walk off or call in sick, then you don't get paid for all the hours you didn't fly. Mm. So I needed the money at the time. My husband wasn't working and I couldn't walk off the plane. And here I am faced five years later. So it brought up my issues is what I'm saying. Um, it was like the man, you know, I went over, I said, can I get you something to drink? Now he's in business class. And I'm like, can I get you something to drink? No. Can I get you something to eat? No. Opens up the Quran. He's reading the Quran. I, he goes in the bathroom. Every time this man went into the bathroom, I went into that lavatory after him to make sure I tossed the whole bathroom to make sure he didn't leave anything in there, like mm. a bomb or whatever. Um, Finally, at the end of the service, I went up front and because I saw one of the air marshals go up front and I went up front and I said, OK, what's the deal? He said, um, they're part of a terrorist cell we're watching. And I said, wonderful. So that brought up my issues again. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Employees Assistance Program, the EAP, to answer a question with. And she basically knew she knew my history because she talked to me after 9-11 and what had happened and tried to palm it off as it was because my mother had cancer. Yeah. So really, no, they didn't want to take responsibility for any of it. So, you know, winding down here, Carol, mm -hmm. what is now in the future for your plans? You're now retired. I am. Um, your story is beginning to circulate. What what is the ultimate goal of telling your story? What do you want the people to know? I I well, I actually want to write a book, but the ultimate goal of what I want people to know is that flight attendants are a lot more than what you think they are. And mm -hmm. they've been put through a lot and they should be treated a lot nicer than we've been treated. People were nice for a week after 9-11 and then it got worse people became horrible again. But my my thing is, you should treat those flight attendants with respect because they've been through a lot, most of them. And, you know, they're there for your safety, not to serve you a drink. And people don't get that because the airlines don't want you to get that because they don't want you to be afraid to fly. 
they want the business. They want you to think that we're just there, you know, as window dressing or whatever. I don't know. They're, you know, but yeah, basically I, the respect, I want them to be respected more. I want, I wanted to get out the message that those flight attendants saved the country and nobody even talks about them. They get no recognition. Well, as long as my show is around, they sure will. Thank and, you. Uh, Carol Hellerman, American Airlines flight attendant for Flight One. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your story and uh, basically uh, reiterating again what we think could have taken place on September 11th was that there were more than just 19 men. There were more going to be more planes that were hijacked. And um, your story is actually uh very fitting with other people's experiences of what took place that day and i want to thank you so much for coming on today my pleasure thank you